stay connected this winter with this unbeatable deal from BreezeLine. Get reliable, fiber-powered internet for just $19.99 per month with all-in pricing for two years. But that's not all. Your first month is on us. This deal gets better with a free modem and installation along with free Wi-Fi your way whole home coverage. Safeguard your network from cyber threats and keep all your devices connected and secured with this amazing offer. Act now. Terms and conditions apply. Offer expires March 3rd, 2024. Learn more at BreezeLine.com. I'm Brian Boitler, Editor-in-Chief of Crooked Media, and you're listening to Crooked Conversations. On today's episode, I spoke with Rhode Island Senator Sheldon Whitehouse. Senator Whitehouse has written an essay for Crooked.com titled Stop Losing, a Senator's Battle Plan for Beating the Right, and invited me up to Capitol Hill to discuss his ideas. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Uh, Thanks for agreeing to do this, Senator. Good to be with you, Brian. Um, So there's so much in the news that I'd love to discuss with you, and particularly given your background as a federal prosecutor and your work on climate change. But we're here because you've written a fantastic essay for us, which everyone listening should read at Crooked.com. And it's about how Democrats can and sort of must retool to rise to their current political challenges. So I'll try to weave in any breaking news um, where we can, but... First, just tell us a little bit about the article and why you felt compelled to write it. I'm tired of losing fights that we ought to win. And I'm tired of watching Republicans win fights that they ought to lose. I'm tired of seeing their side succeed with things where 30% of the public supports them. And we quail when we have 70% public support. Um, I think there are differentiations between our side and theirs in terms of sheer force of will in terms of organization and planning. And I think we need to overcome those. You know, Pickett's Mm -hmm. charge was a glorious act of enthusiasm, and they mostly all died on the field because it was a really dumb move and they weren't (laughs) organized for it. So being organized matters. And I opened the piece with the famous description by Winston Churchill of General George C. Marshall, an American hero, as the organizer of victory. So the essay goes it goes into pretty like great depth. It describes a number of political fights Democrats have sort of meekly engaged in and lost and why you think that is. And I guess to me your diagnosis it read that it was uh, like a lot of your colleagues are kind of freaked out by the thought of just standing up unreservedly for what's right when they worry it might not be popular. Is that a a fair synopsis or a fair distillation of... Uh, Yeah, I wouldn't want to put it down to um, the characteristics of individual colleagues. I think as a group, Democrats have not built the kind of infrastructure that can support us in being tough, Mm -hmm. uh, being willing to take heat, knowing how to win a fight, um, making sure you have a plan before you step into a fight. Some of the sort of basic things that are like elementary in either military contests or in the corporate world of uh, planning and predicting, um, we tend to kind of just go along by the enthusiasms of the group. And that 
doesn't work often. I, I wonder if you think that's happening right now, sort of as we're recording this, there's a debate going on among Democrats. It's in both the House and the Senate, but mostly in the House about how aggressively House Democrats who just won a majority should wield their oversight powers. Um, so here, Democrats are fresh off of a historically large midterm victory and against a party that's propping up President Trump, who's sort of historically corrupt. Um and he's deeply unpopular, and yet Democrats aren't certain whether a you know a f- like full throated investigation is is wise. So why why do you think that is? And do you think that that sort of insecurity that's revealed in these in these doubts Democrats have is indicative of the problems that you've described in the article? Um, perhaps a little bit less so than some of the other things. Mm-hmm. Um, for a lot of years, I've been. A prosecutor. I ran the mm-hmm. U.S. Attorney's Office in Rhode Island. Uh, I was the Attorney General in an office in which we did all of the criminal cases. There weren't any DAs in Rhode Island. There mm-hmm. aren't any in Delaware, Rhode Island, or Alaska. You get to be like the DA as well <laughs> as the Attorney General, so you do lots of criminal investigative work. Uh-huh. And so both at the federal and state level, um, this is an area that I have worked in, and I very strongly believe that when you are doing an investigation, whether it's a legislative investigation or an executive branch criminal investigation, you need to stay like a boxer within your stance. Mm-hmm. You shouldn't be like lunging and telegraphing. You should be building a case carefully and then with any luck delivering from a strong stance uh, a knockout punch once you're ready. Right. So I think that that is probably what they're trying to get to in the House. Um, I think it is wise not to expect a lot of theatrical investigation, getting way ahead of your skis before you really know what the evidence is going to be. That can blow you up just as badly as not doing anything. So I'm actually pretty confident that uh, people like Representatives Schiff and Nadler know their way around this world well enough to be able to position themselves within their stance. And as boxers know, you deliver a stronger punch when you're balanced than if you're flailing and lunging. Mm -hmm. I hear what you're saying, and and I I, I have the same sense about the incoming chairman as you. But you do have uh, these rank-and-file members who are urging the leadership to focus on legislating the Democratic agenda and not on oversight as if these, this isn't like a walk and chew gum issue. Yeah, we can walk and chew gum. Right. And it, it seems like what's happened is Republicans have kind of gotten in their heads about overreach. Um, and it just struck me that there is some resonance there with what you wrote in the article, because I know that there's a lot of um, a lot of our listeners and a lot of uh, a lot of just rank and file Democrats who think that Democrats shouldn't shy away from obtaining President Trump's tax returns, um, investigating, you know, it it was sort of just reported and made light of that basically every entity President Trump is associated with is under criminal investigation. And why shouldn't criminal or civil? Yeah, right. Why shouldn't the why shouldn't the uh, Democrats in committees of jurisdiction not not work, you know, without interfering with the like with the prosecutors and investigators on uh, like putting together public information about those exact things. Yeah, I think they I think they should. Uh, I expect they will. Um, one of the places where the topic that you have 
raised overlaps with one of my topics is in the question of taking on the apparatus Mm -hmm. that is behind the Republican Party. We do a lot of tangling with our Republican adversaries at the point of contest Mm -hmm. in a particular issue. Um, We do a very poor job of looking behind the point of contest and showing the United States of America that the big billionaire interests that are behind, say, climate denial Mm -hmm. have huge overlap with the big billionaire interests that are behind packing the court with people who will rule for big billionaire interests uh, that have huge overlap with the people who are behind cranking out the weaponized fake news that Mm -hmm. is used to uh, trash Democrats and our candidates. Um, And so, you know, if we're going to do serious and thoughtful investigation, I think a part of it should be to look behind the scenes and start to open up some of the dark money channels and show who's really paying for the judicial crisis network, show who's really paying for the climate denial operation, you know, tell the story and be strategic about what you expose. So I think good investigations, staying within their stance, not flailing and lunging, delivering strong punches, also have a targeting issue of making sure that they're focusing on things that in the long run will help Americans see that they've basically been had. Do you, do you think the disclosure um, of the sort of, you know, the uh, man or men behind the curtain there would in and of itself um, kind of uh, bring those institutions or that apparatus down or what happens from there? So you, you, you discover that it's, you know, a network of five or six billionaires propping up 10 or 12 organizations that produce most of the conservative propaganda out there. And um, then what? You know, how, how, well, then, how, how do you get from there to it's no longer in the conservative movement's in interest or the Republican Party's interest to put that stuff out there? Yeah. Well, first, you can embarrass the people who are behind it. Mm-hmm. There's a reason they're trying to hide what they're doing. Mm-hmm. If they weren't embarrassed and didn't feel that secrecy was an asset for them, they wouldn't be maintaining the secrecy. So there's a signal right there to try mm-hmm. to take uh, the secrecy away. That then turns into being able to argue differently in the public sphere. You're not just talking about climate change being polar bears versus jobs or whatever the narrative is that the Republicans have created. You're talking about how huge fossil fuel special interests are quietly funding this ginormous apparatus to propagate falsehood, to propagate phony uh, climate denial and basically lie at a massive scale. And that allows you um, a whole new rhetorical countermeasure against this stuff. And finally, when people feel they're being had, it changes their appreciation of the issue. And um, I have seen um, reporting that shows that across the political spectrum, people move towards accepting climate science and wanting to do something about climate change when they have an appreciation of what the climate denial operation looks like and how crooked it is and that they've been had. And that's like a nine-point move. When you can generate a nine-point move on an issue that's massively important simply by telling the truth, that's worth doing. Yeah. So and for a whole bunch of reasons, this, I think, is strategically essential for us to go after. And 
and I guess the subtext of the article is sort of you think that apart from Democrats in Congress doing their part to bring this information out, um, sort of Democratic-leaning interest groups, progressive groups should set up the sort of supportive infrastructure to help get from step one, which is disclosure or exposure or whatever you want to call it, to generating the kind of public outrage that leads to boycotts or whatever that could then actually make like change the interest calculation that the that the people who put out the fake news make is that absolutely absolutely and look at judges for instance mm-hmm. if we fight that somebody is just too conservative let's say and then they get rammed through and stuffed on the court and they just start doing their thing we have lost a huge opportunity if we have failed to point out that the groups who chose them mm-hmm through the Federalist Society, by funding the Federalist Society and getting Leonard Leo to clear his his picks with them, are the same groups that are funding the Judicial Crisis Network that is funding these campaigns to support these nominees, that are the same groups that are behind the amicus briefs that tell the Supreme Court and the other courts what these interests want them to do, Mm -hmm. and that, what do you know, these are the same groups that tend to be the big winners in the decisions that these judges then produce. It's a circular loop that I think if it's exposed, will put a lot of those judges on their heels about being so obviously part of a uh, self-serving special interest piece of machinery. This podcast is supported by the new film Vice. From Adam McKay, the writer-director of The Big Short, Vice is an epic and comedic look at how Dick Cheney, an uncharismatic vice president, became the most powerful man in the world. You might remember this. He literally shot someone in the face and the victim apologized for it. The film stars Christian Bale, Amy Adams, Steve Carell, and Sam Rockwell. See it in theaters December 25th. I want to get I want to get back to the question of judges and uh, what else Democrats can do to address the sort of um, imbalance and the um, kind of undemocratic or anti-democratic nature of the courts as they are today. Um, but before we get there, I want to talk a little bit more about the environment. Um, I, two of the problems that you say contribute to Democrats losing are, one, that they've shied away from using their legitimate powers to press their advantages, um, and two, that they use watered-down, poll-tested messaging at various stages of political fights. You know, if you go in with the bad message, you're likely to lose. Once you lose on a bad message, you can't come out of that victorious or bloodied, right? Yeah. And plus, with a good message on the on the flip side. Plus, I think that um, if you are a party that decides what it's going to do mm-hmm. based on looking at polls and figuring out what the three – top issues are to the American people, and then taking those issues to focus groups and hearing how Mm -hmm. those focus groups want people to talk about those issues, that's your strategic uh, posture. Mm -hmm. You're going to end up looking weak because you are weak. You are poll chasing, and you are simply doing what people are telling you to do, whereas in theory – as one of the great political parties in history, Democrats have some obligation to look ahead, see what's coming, and prepare for those fights. And if the public isn't with us right away, 
we still have an obligation to prepare for those fights and bring the public along. And the example I use is the estate tax. Mm-hmm. Who gives a red hot damn about the estate tax with like one one hundredth of the top one percent ever likely to actually pay the estate tax? But it was important to the Republicans, so they made it a thing. And now conservatives across the country for whom this has no reality whatsoever in terms of something they'll ever do, they're like, yeah, we got to repeal the death tax. Right. They got brought along on that issue. Meanwhile, the planet is baking. Right. We are poisoning our oceans. The reefs are collapsing. There are wildfires and floods, and you know nature is beating us around the head, saying, "Look out, fellas! We're coming at you if you don't change your behavior." And we won't elevate that issue I'm into so, the top three. I'm so glad you highlighted the contrast between Republicans using this, you know, two-word phrase "death tax" to generate decades worth of policy, right? And I think right now we're seeing how. Uh, like ill-prepared Democrats are to take similar steps, right? Like currently, um, progressives are sort of lobbying Democrats in Congress to sign on, and they're calling it the Green New Deal, right? Um, I guess I should ask you at the outset of this part of the conversation whether you support that effort to get Democrats to sign on to a Green New Deal, which is, you know, defined differently different places, but an ambitious program to uh, turn the country onto green energy and... and um, you know, stop the uh, progress of climate change. I think an ambitious program to do that is essential. My personal view that I think is shared by virtually everybody who's taken a look at this is that you really can't solve the problem of climate change unless you solve the problem of the economic subsidies for the fossil fuel industry, mm-hmm. which includes having them not have to pay for the costs of their pollution. That's Econ 101, that the harm that a product causes has to be baked into the price of the product or otherwise it's a subsidy. So I'm, you know, all for building green infrastructure, but I don't want to end up having fought a long battle over a green bill that doesn't get the job done. And I think an essential part to get the job done is actually to have a price on carbon. It can fund a lot of the other stuff if that's where people want to go. But the International Monetary Fund says that the advantage that fossil fuel gets in the United States alone every single year is $700 billion in free harm to the public. That is a huge amount of money. And I don't think just green energy and just green infrastructure is going to offset that imbalance. We've got to set the economy balanced for energy, and then a lot of stuff falls into place. So I don't want to get married to any particular program right now until I see that it's going to solve the problem. But if you have every Republican in Congress saying we oppose the death tax, is there not a is there not a strategic advantage to having every Democrat in Congress saying we support a Green New Deal with the understanding that, you know, the the package of issues that comprise the New Deal, if and when it's ever passed, you know, uh, might change over time as as the legislative sausage gets made. I mean, I think that raising the issue of climate change and of carbon pollution into our top portfolio of mm-hmm. issues that we talk about is long overdue. And the Green New Deal conversation accomplishes that. So I welcome and salute that aspect of it. I think this is probably the area where we have been, as Democrats, at our weakest uh, and most shamelessly 
pole chasing and ignoring the obvious problems around us when we have a huge win in front of us. And by the way, the reason the Republicans are doing this is mm-hmm. because they've been paid to right. by the fossil fuel industry, which, I mean, the Republican Party has basically become the political wing of the fossil fuel industry after Citizens United. That's a strong story to be able to tell. And we are not telling that story and we are not elevating this issue. And the energy behind the Green New Deal, I think, is helpful in both of those uh, contests. See, this is why I was interested uh, to see you in the piece single out for praise your, your former colleague, Mary, Mary Landrew, and her envi- environmental record. Um, while sort of simultaneously you express your regret that the Senate failed to follow the lead of the House back in 2009 and 10 in not passing a price on carbon. Because, yep. um, you know, I was a sort of cub reporter at the time, and I remember Mary Landrieu kind of pleading with Senate leaders in the White House to drop the idea of a cap-and-trade bill or a, or, or a carbon tax. And I, 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 want, I wonder how you reconcile this idea that you know, Democrats need to elevate issues by speaking with one voice on them with the other theme of your piece, which is that Democrats shouldn't sort of uh, fall into fr- circular firing squads and, and um, you know, uh, hold it against somebody like Senator Landrieu that she opposed price and carbon. Yeah, I think the, uh, the resolution of that is that you have to have plans and you have to have strategies. And if all you're doing is waiting until people are really frustrated Mm -hmm. that nothing is being done, and then you're popping off at our own side to criticize them for not being where the most forward people want them to be, then we really just have created a circular firing squad, and the fossil fuel interests sit there snickering as we quarrel with each other. When if we were doing this right, there would be planning and strategy and we would figure out how we get from point A where we are now to point B, which is a proper price on carbon and an appropriate renewable energy program. Call it a Green New Deal if you want. And then you work your way through that and how you get support from, say, Senator Landrieu back in the day becomes part of that equation because ultimately you are going to need her. But to throw her under the bus and make her a figure of condemnation when she actually got the biggest environmental program passed in my years in the Senate, um, you know, you kind of have to learn how to get along, take your wins, but organize. It's not – this isn't just a question of enthusiasm. It's not just a question of will. It's not just a question of commitment and passion. It's a question of Organizing, having a plan, having a strategy, having accountability, having steps that you have to go through, taking those steps and working your way towards a victory the way you do in virtually every other part of organized life. So Whether it's a military campaign or a corporate rollout or a uh, launch of an NGO, whatever it is, you, you go through these steps, and, and we haven't been very good at that. I think if you, if you asked an like a, a environmental activist or – any you know anybody in any field of uh, progressive activism how do you how do you make it so that somebody from a tough state when it comes to pricing carbon whether it's a coal state or an oil state or whatever uh feels like they have the right set of incentives to to vote for a bill that actually you know is easy for republicans to demagogue against at least that it'll hurt their state um it 
is that you need carrots and you need sticks. You need both um, activist energy to uh, make them believe that when they support this legislation, that that'll translate into, into votes. Um, but that you shouldn't disarm by abandoning the stick of whether that's, you know, funding primary challenges or um, or running ads, you know, saying Senator so-and-so doesn't support uh, stopping climate change. Um, why are you saying that stick that, that sticks shouldn't be part of the? Of no, the, I'm saying that the assumption in your question is a lost narrative. And to stick with climate change for mm -hmm. a moment, we have basically for many years lost that narrative. We were for protecting polar bears. They were right. for protecting jobs. That's how we let it play out. We put almost no effort into exposing the whole phony baloney climate denial operation. We've got academics who are doing that for us. We've got Jane Mayer and uh, other researchers doing that for us. The Democratic Party, you can't find a place in the Democratic Party that's its job to expose the apparatus that is propping up all this phony climate denial. So you go to work on that. You go to work on how with a real strategy on how, you know, green jobs are actually the way of the future. Mm -hmm. I think you can even work your way on climate through coal country by pointing out that if you want to make every miner a king, a carbon fee provides the revenues to do that. Otherwise, the choices are basically slow motion crash at the hands of the market with no real support uh, for the people in that community. But we never sit down and undertake the strategic analysis of how you get from point A to point B, other than by trying to corral and knock off members. But if we haven't done our work as a party of putting together the winning strategy and the winning narrative and proving it to be true, then to sort of fall back on, okay, now let's take out this candidate, that doesn't replace being ready. It doesn't replace being organized. It doesn't replace having a winning narrative. It doesn't replace the uh, structural elements right. of victory. Let's so, imagine a world where Democrats were just better at that. You get to a place where Democrats reach consensus on important issues because um, they've strategized correctly and they've built the right institutions to support them. You can them finally put so Will Rogers' ghost to bed. <laughs> you, I'm not a member of any organized political party. I'm a Democrat, <laughs> he said. But, so you, you actually uh, point to issues where Democrats sort of got to that point. Immigration is one where Democrats um, had unity, passed a bill through the Senate. Yep. Um, then Republicans sort of unilaterally just said, we're not going to put this on the House and the Senate. And then Democrats just kind of were like, well, I guess that's game over, right? And you, you even suggest that one way to test whether Republicans were committed to just killing this bill was the president has the power to call a yeah. special session of Congress. Yeah. It just wasn't a Harry Truman was famous for doing that. He right. turned his presidency around by doing that from – he was in real trouble until he called the do-nothing Congress back into session. And another, another tool you suggest – um, the Obama administration could have used the tobacco lawsuit, lawsuit is, the, is the model. Is the model. Um, I, I, you know, I, there are there are no shortage of sort of people in the progressive world who who wishes the Obama administration had taken a harder line on the big, big banks too, using their inherent legitimate authority to do so. 
And um, then dark and, money. And, and dark we money. We basically allowed dark money Di- to happen. We rolled over for the Republican <laughs> narrative that the IRS was going after politically conservative organizations without telling the larger story of what was really going on. And frankly, um, it probably is illegal to do dark money except for the fact that the IRS has been chipping away at its own rules and regulations. But off of the existing law on this subject, even if you didn't think – that the IRS regs were adequate, you could go through and write new regs that would have protected us from a lot of this dark money stuff. So if you look at the damage that dark money has done to the issues we care about, to the honesty of our democracy, and to uh, Republicans being able to use it to beat Democrats, the fact that we just let that happen is unbelievable. So the the powers we're talking about there are inherent, I guess, to the executive branch. Yep. Um, enacting something like a Green New Deal is a legislative endeavor, and it would Correct. be hard, even if the Republican Party weren't in thrall to fossil fuel industries. Um, so it's hard for me to see significant action on that front happening if the legislative filibuster remains intact in its current form. Um, so in the same vein as you wish that the executive branch under Obama had kind of pushed harder against these forces where they had toeholds of power. Would you support eliminating the filibuster as a means to the end of stopping climate change? Um, I don't know that you could actually get support for doing that in the Senate. I think that may actually set you back rather than move you forward. Um, But there is a vehicle and it's been used by both sides, and it's the reconciliation measure. That, that would get you the carbon tax. That would get you and uh, a fair amount of associated stuff. You've got to survive some parliamentary uh, challenges about generally germaneness, I guess you'd call it. Right. But so far, that has been uh, construed fairly broadly. Um, so there are... There are ways to make it happen if you get through a um, a bill through the House now. But there are other tools that we have at our disposal that we should not forswear. Mm-hmm. We have, for instance, an enormous corporate community that ostensibly wants action on climate change. Um, we've got probably 70 or 80 huge American corporations, everybody from Facebook to Bank of America to Coke and Pepsi, um, who all said, look, we need to support the Paris Agreement. And Trump's decision to try to pull us out of the Paris Agreement was a big mistake. So they're out there. Mm -hmm. And we know who they are. And by and large, they're pretty good at climate stuff. But what do they do when they come to Congress? They completely throw Mm -hmm. in the towel on anything having to do with climate. They virtually don't lift a finger. They rely on trade associations that are often against their position on climate. And then they fund the climate enemies of action, National Association of Manufacturers, Farm Bureau, U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Those groups have been completely taken over by the fossil fuel industry. And they are the three biggest opponents of climate action. And they're supported by American corporations that claim they want action on climate. So... We're in a position, I think, to point out the discrepancy 
between the policies that these companies claim to espouse and the politics that they bring to Congress. And if all of those companies were to shift and say to Republicans, look, you guys have had a long run with the climate denial stuff, it's over. We're done with you if you keep that up. We're serious about climate. We do it in our companies. We do it in our supply chains. We tell our customers we're serious about this. We're done with you if you don't get on board. That would make an enormous difference. And that, then you don't need to worry about the filibuster. You're doing your job by motivating the forces that are out there ostensibly on your team to actually show up on the field and put on a uniform and uh, get into the game. There's a buzzy gift on everyone's list this year. It's something they'll use twice a day, it was featured on Oprah's O-List, and it's perfect for everyone with a mouth. This it gift is Quip, an electric toothbrush designed to make brushing better. Quip makes holiday travels clean and easy with a multi-use cover that mounts to mirrors and unmounts to slide over the bristles for on-the-go brushing. Quip doesn't require a clunky charger and runs for three months on one charge. Quip is the gift that keeps refreshing, with brush heads automatically delivered on a dentist-recommended schedule every three months for just $5. And you can even gift prepaid refills for a year to make sure they're never using old, worn-out, ineffective bristles. I love Quip because I hate stinky breath, both my own and yours, and Quip makes bad breath a thing of the past. That's why I love Quip and why they have over 5,000 verified five-star reviews. Quip looks like a big-ticket tech gift with a stocking stuffer price starting at just $25. And if you go to getquip.com forward slash crooked combos right now, you get your first refill pack for free with a Quip electric toothbrush. But you don't have to tell your giftee about that. That's your first refill free at getquip.com slash crookedconvos, G-E-T-Q-I-P dot com slash crookedconvos. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Doesn't the experience with immigration kind of suggest that that might not be enough to get Republicans to say, let's let's quit it with climate denialism that, you know, corporate America was pretty supportive of the Senate immigration compromise. And John Boehner, who was very friendly with the Chamber of Commerce, said, sorry, guys, I can't take this vote. Yeah. And And, and we walked away at that point because we had the ability to say, not so fast, Mr. Speaker. We have the ability through the President of the United States to force you to come back into session and consider the immigration bill. The President can say the reason I'm calling the House back into session is that we have bipartisan immigration reform that has passed the Senate, and I know this is uncomfortable for them, and I'm sorry about that, but the American people deserve a vote. They deserve some consideration, and you can call them back and call them back and call them back, but nothing about the uh, provision of the Constitution to call the Congress or either House thereof back into session says you're limited to doing it just once. And so you could put real political pressure on them that would then give those corporations something to lean in on and demonstrate their support. But we didn't. We walked away from it and we ended up, I think, relatedly, actually, having a really epic uh, election defeat that November because we'd given up the subject of immigration. We'd taken the spotlight off of the Republican refusal even to address it in the House. And instead, it was Ebola and ISIS and the border 
that dominated the news in that cycle, and we got killed. We just dropped this as an issue when we had winning field position, in my view. Would you say that filibuster reform then is a, a form of procedural hardball that you have to get to once sort of lesser forms of hardball, like special sessions of Congress, et cetera? If those fail, then maybe you look to uh, something more like a nuclear option. I think you got to. At the end of the day, it's the it's the planet, right? Yeah, so. yeah. I, and I think um, at the end of the day, you got to figure out what works and where you have the votes. And um, if it were to come to that, then I would say, let's use reconciliation and let's get this done because it is the planet. But to go to measures that probably would not succeed in terms of getting enough votes in the Senate to have them happen and to make them our standard for where we are on this issue when as a party we have not done the homework to put ourselves in a winning field position on this and when we've fallen into a winning field position thanks to the brilliance of Nancy Pelosi among other things, mm-hmm. we've walked away from the fight with like 10 minutes left on the clock <laughs> and we're seven yards out from the goal line and we walk back into the locker room and say, oh, well, you know, we're kind of tired. We gave it a shot. We gave it a shot. That's enough. So, Running all these next plays might annoy people. Let's not do that. So here's a related question, and I'm really glad you raised this in the article um, because it's a big pet peeve of mine. Um, you are that over in the Senate, the advantage to small Republican states is baked into the Constitution. The result is that in the current Congress, Democrats in the Senate represent about 40 million more Americans than the Republican quote-unquote majority. Um, were the shoe on the other foot, every American would know about it. Um, yeah, and then there was the year uh, after the red map gerrymander right. really went into effect when they controlled the House with over a million fewer votes for Republicans than Democrats got, and they controlled delegations from Pennsylvania and Ohio from losing statewide vote right. counts, and then twice they've had presidents in office with a minority of the popular vote, and they act as they have this colossal mandate, and we don't bother to call them on this, saying, not only do you have no mandate, you're actually the real minority, right. so like, have a little humility, so guys. So th- this, is, this is exactly... Uh this is exactly it. Republicans tend to embrace these minority rule powers that they have, whether it's the filibuster or gerrymandering or uh, or any of packing the courts and just having the courts do their bidding. And in, in my mind, filibuster reform is one way uh, to kind of restore or push us back in the direction of majority rule. But so is the uh, just be careful what you wish for. <laughs> Well, but there's a but there's a real democratic small d democratic integrity to the idea, right? That the majority uh, in a legislative chamber makes the law. Um, and and the the related question that I have is about um, D.C. statehood, statehood for Puerto Rico. Um, I I read you quoted in the Providence Journal, kind of suggesting that you weren't too hot on on those ideas. It's not an issue for Rhode Island voters. But it is it is relevant to the to the argument that you're making about Republicans, you know, kind of exploiting their baked in small state advantage, right? That if you can offset that by giving statehood to Americans who don't have it currently, it won't be 40 million Americans that are re- are underrepresented. It'll be fewer. Why is that not a good thing that kind of supports the exact ends that you? 
argue for in the, I, in the I article. Think if we, I think if we had the chance to uh, do that, it would be terrific. I think that every single Republican would see that as an effort to switch the balance of power, which is exactly the theory that you're proposing it for. And as Just, a result, you'd walk into exactly the type of uh, opposition you would uh, expect. If there's a way to do it, um, I, I don't object, but I just don't see that as a plausible, effective, strategic way to get things done that we want. So I sort of sense that one way or another, Democrats are going to have to answer the challenge you've posed them um, for a number of reasons. One that we discussed about, I mean, it, it's it's climate change. The party um, overrepresents young people uh, in the country who are inheriting the changing climate, and they're going to increasingly demand action, I think. Yeah. Um, but you also note that, and you just said it now, that, that Trump and the GOP have um, uh, sort of ignored the fact that they are in power in a minority rule uh, yeah. situation, right? And they just plow ahead with an unpopular agenda as if they had a mandate. So the tax bill, the courts, and on and on are, are ref- you know, they they don't reflect any Republican humility about the fact that they are the minority party, even though they are in power, right? Yeah. And I feel like we may be approaching a point where rank and file Democrats, Democratic voters, say this stretches legitimacy to begin with. But now we're not just looking at, you know, the Constitution allows them to come to power this way, but that we're living under judges that were appointed by a president who kind of cheated, who broke the laws to win the election. And they're going to come to Democrats and if they're victorious and get the chance to control the government again and say, why won't you just undo the illegitimate things that the last administration did and and kind of came into power illegitimately to do? Um, So what would you say to them, like, if 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 that happens and and they're clamoring for for, you know, kind of restoring a more fair order? um, if if the entire Democratic Party is kind of not where they are and and says we can't undo what they did with the courts and we can't undo the entirety of the tax bill and we can't we can't even necessarily pass a, a full legislative agenda through the multi veto point yeah. legislative process that we have because I feel like that hunger is going to rise as we learn more about what's I'm, happening. I'm not sure that we cannot um, undo a good deal of what they've done with the courts. But in the same way that we failed in other areas of contest, we need to up our game in this area of contest. We take decisions like Citizens United, Mm -hmm. like the Shelby County voting rights decision, like the Janus union busting decision, and we deplore them. And then we move on to something else. What we have not done is looked at the behavior of the five Republican appointees who have made the conservative majority under Chief Justice Roberts in any kind of a uh, persistent way. We have not looked behind the immediate contest at the apparatus behind it. When you look behind it, you see that Roberts has led those five to 73 decisions in which they couldn't get a single Democrat to join them, and in which a big Republican interest got a big win, 73 to zero 
if you look at the 5-4 decisions where they couldn't get a single Democrat and there was a big Republican interest in that case, 73 to 0. That is a pattern. That is worth exposing and talking about, and it's worth turning that into a platform for beginning to look at who funded the selection of these judges, to look at who funded the campaigns that supported the nomination and confirmation of these judges, to look at who's behind the amicus briefs that are telling these judges what to do, and to look at who these winners are and how that all fits together into a piece. If we do our homework and really look into that, particularly if we're also looking into the extent to which these judges get their social lives from the same billionaire group that they're delivering 73 decisions for in five to four partisan basis, then I think we've got a really strong story to tell to the American people and the whole bunch of possibilities open up, not the least of which is that they're just embarrassed into stopping this special interest behavior. But to go to like these really, really serious procedural measures, I mean, the only thing I can think you could be discussing is actually impeaching these judges. There is no other tool for their removal. So you're talking about mass impeachments. <laughs> no. You know, if you're going to if that's where you're going to go, you got a lot of work to do to bring the American <laughs> well, people on board. So what we often do is go to some like out there theoretical, you know, potential white feather to save the day. My point is we are losing the day-to-day -day battle of blocking and tackling and building the case for the American people using the evidence that is right there in front of us because we're not organized mm -hmm. to take that fight seriously. We're not organized to build that case. We don't have the persistence to last over time and continue to develop the message and tell the American people what is going on. And they do. And that's what burns me in all of this. They are more successful at propagating lies into the American body politic than we are at propagating the truth. For what it's worth, the, the historical antecedent I was thinking of was the, the switch in time that saved nine, the, using the politics that you sort of just described as, as kind of like the carrot with the stick being the threat to neutralize the judges who are doing corporate America's bidding by adding more judges. Um, in the end, obviously, FDR didn't do that, um, but it, it worked. In the, in the end, the Lochner era came to an end through a process sort of like the one you described, but it had the, it had the stick in the background, right, of FDR saying. Well, you had FDR out there arguing against the Lochner era mm -hmm. and uh, making a real point of it. And I, <laughs> I point out that the Supreme Court decisions in that Lochner era were far fewer than 73. <laughs> and True. the 73 to zero run that Roberts and the Republican appointees have taken the Supreme Court on, ignoring their Democratic uh, colleagues and delivering 73 straight big wins for uh, big Republican donor interests um, by a win rate of 73 to zero that's a pretty darn compelling story about what's really going on at the court. And until we tell that story, to leap to the conclusion that the American people are going to be with us if we try to undertake heroic measures, we're not, we haven't done our homework yet. 
blocking and tackling. You don't win games with Hail Marys. You win games by running first down after first down after first down after first down, having a game plan, and getting your damn team on the field. That is a hopeful story. I, I want to close by offering a chance to um, offer any concluding thoughts about anything we might not have discussed. Well, I, I mean, I think that this is improvement is within our grasp if we uh, make it a point of honor to not walk away from fights when we still have winning field position, if we make it a matter of strategic significance to take on the apparatus behind our adversaries and not just fight them at the point of the uh, contest, if we give up on the wretched pole chasing, decide what it is that we really need to accomplish for the American people and make that our priorities, and then the public will come along behind us if we've done a good job at that. If not, we need to rethink. But chasing polls is not the way to, to go there. And we've got to be a little bit more impatient with our uh, false friends. If you're really going to be serious about climate change, you can't be supporting the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, which <laughs> is the number one antagonist to climate action. I mean, come on. You would never expect that. In a war, that would be called aid and comfort to the enemy. And we don't even hold anybody accountable for that kind of stuff in the group of, of, of our friends. And then finally, let's put Will Rogers' ghost to bed. Let's not be the party that uh, is not organized. We can be organized. We're different than they are, right? Mm -hmm. You know, they are top down. They're run by probably... 10 billionaires and billionaire interests. So it's really easy for them to pull together, to be organized, to have like corporate driven control and um, or organization. We are a large herd of quarreling cats. It's a whole different thing to be a Democrat, mm -hmm. but it doesn't mean we can't hold ourselves accountable to improve our ability to get on the field. And if we're still playing second grade soccer, you know, five or 10 years from now and everybody's chasing the ball and nobody has a game plan and shame on us. Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks to everyone for listening and check back in one week for another great conversation from the Crooked Media Network. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.